And you are here on a great morning because we are starting a new book of the Bible. And every book of the Bible I start, I tend to, because I'm spending more time in that book, I always feel like it's my favorite. So, but you're going to hear that again from me this morning. We are going to begin the book of Exodus this morning. And it is an absolutely phenomenal book. And as we go through Exodus, in particular, I'm going to be pointing out what the book of Exodus and the life of Moses contributes to our formation as leaders. So I'm calling the series, Following Jesus, Leading Like Moses. Following Jesus, Leading Like Moses. Let me just say a couple things about that title. By saying following Jesus, leading like Moses, of course, I'm bringing together the Old and New Testaments. We're drawing off of the ancient Hebrew tradition, but we're doing so in a way that acknowledges that Jesus is the prophet prophesied who is greater than Moses. And so ultimately for us, we look to Jesus and we want to be followers of him. For us, he is the leader par excellence. There is no other leader like Jesus. So in one very real sense, we follow Jesus and Jesus alone. And yet, we need earthly, human, finite examples. We need people in life to teach us how to do things how to tie our shoes, how to drive a car, how to get a job, how to write a resume, specifically one that gets you hired and doesn't you know, highlight that you're too great too much because then they're like, okay, it's a narcissist. But we need people to help us with these things. We need teachers. We need leaders. But of course, the problem with human leaders is they are all fallen, sinful human beings. That's not even to say they're bad people per se by our standards, but they do not meet the standards of God. No human being does. If there was going to be a leader aside from Jesus that meets some perfect standard, I, I look at Moses as being as close to it as you can get. And yet I think Moses and looking to someone like him is so important because there's one very real and important sense I relate to Moses in which I can't relate to Jesus. And that is as a sinner. Jesus never sinned. Jesus doesn't know what it's like to be a leader who fails. Jesus doesn't know what it's like to wrestle with a guilty conscience due to his sin. Moses does. Moses is a finite human being, and as great as he is, he is a fallen man. If you were here with us at the beginning when we read Psalm 90, which is a psalm attributed to Moses, the superscript above the psalm says, Ish ha Elohim, Moses the man of God. He was simply a man. But we can look to people in life, and as a matter of fact, we need to. We must. We're always looking to others. And so what I'm hoping through our study of Exodus is that we'll all be formed into a community of leaders who follow Jesus but can lead like Moses. And I want to make sure that you all know you are leaders. Many of you, when you hear that word, leader, you go, well, that's not me. I'm not a politician. I don't own a company and have many employees under my care. Uh, I'm not a mother. I'm not a father. I'm not a husband. I'm not a wife. But think of leadership this way. Think of leadership in terms of influence. Do you have influence on somebody else's life? I think you all have an amen, sister. We all have influence on somebody else's life. And in that sense, whether you think of yourself as a leader or not, someone else is watching you. Someone else is following you. Maybe you're not the only one they follow. They follow some others, so you feel like, well, I don't have tons of responsibility because they're following some other people too. But eyes are on you. And people, if you're a Christian, people are supposed to be able to know who God is by how you live your life. And so it's so important that all of us see ourselves as people, positionally or not, 
who are called to lead. And I think this book of Exodus is going to show us how to become better leaders. And so I'm going to focus on leadership, but I'll take us through the details of the text because there is so much here, so much richness, so much life for us to learn from. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Exodus chapter 1, and we will be looking at the whole chapter this morning, Exodus chapter 1. We'll have the passage up on the screen behind me. I like to read our scripture text for this morning as a whole first before we break down its parts for context. So this is God's word, Exodus 1, beginning in verse 1. Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man in his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful, and increased abundantly, multiplied, and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and it happen in the event of war, that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pitom and Raamses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And there were, they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the, one of the name was Shiphrah, and the name of the other Puah. And he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was, because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, and we just pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit wants to say to the church this morning. Lord, we thank you for your providential hand in history. We thank you that even after the first humans sinned and rebelled against you and your purposes for the world, you did not give up on the world. We thank you that later, even when humanity was united against you at the Tower of Babel and refused to obey your voice, you still did not give up on humanity. But you chose Abraham. And you made of him a nation, as we read about this morning to carry on your purposes in the world. We thank you that even when Israel was unfaithful and when Israel went wrong, there was a remnant. And we thank you that Jesus, the true and faithful Israelite who fulfills all the law of God came, fulfilled the law on our behalf and has made a new covenant with us so that we can all be sons and daughters of the King grafted in 
together as one new people in the Messiah, Jesus. We thank you for this, Lord. We pray you would form us into leaders. I pray that we would be followers of Jesus who can lead others to Jesus. That we would not be people like sheep following false shepherds in the world. False spiritual leaders, false political leaders, false leaders in relationships and business and whatever it might be. Lord, help us to hear the voice of the Good Shepherd this morning. Help us to follow Him. And as we follow Jesus, turn us into people that other people can follow. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, so we're beginning our journey through Exodus, and there's so much here. I'm gonna tr- every week, I'm going to make at least one point about leadership, but there is so much going on in Exodus. I, I didn't want to reduce the study simply to lessons on leadership, so I'll include that at the end this morning. So we'll talk about leadership, but I want to talk about what else is going on here in this text. And I have four points this morning. Number one, through the faithfulness of the Lord, God's people are enabled to fulfill his purposes for creation. Look again at verses one through seven. It says, now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt, each man in his household. It gives you a genealogy, verse five. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons and Joseph died and all his brothers. And look at verse seven. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty and the land was filled with them. In very explicit language, Moses is tying the beginning of the Exodus narrative into the narrative of Genesis. Now, initially, that's quite obvious. He's repeating a genealogy that we last saw at the end of Genesis. So, yeah, okay, he's making a connection. I can see him weaving it together so that the reader knows this is not some new story. This is the continuing story of the good creator God who made the world and everything in it, and he made it good. Moses wants the reader of Exodus to know that story. But he goes beyond that, and he's using particular language about God's purpose for creation in this narrative, specifically Genesis 1.28. If you look at Genesis 1.28, this is what God told Adam and Eve before the fall. It says, Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, para, and multiply, rava, and fill, mala, the earth, and subdue it. Those three Hebrew words are the exact same words used in verse 7 of Exodus chapter 1. God's command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, to swarm it, one of the languages used for the creatures, to swarm the sea, is used of the children of Israel. What Moses is doing is he's signaling to the reader, to the listener, that God's purposes for creation have not failed. When you look out into the world, and remember, at this context, when an Israelite would look out into their world at this moment, apart from the Word of God, what would they have seen? They would have seen tyranny. They would have seen injustice. They would have seen violence. They would have seen genocide. You can imagine a person without the benefit of this Holy Scriptures would not come to a conclusion that God was good apart from the word of God telling them that this is not the way he made the world. And that is a point we must repeat today. One of the biggest arguments against God, believing in God, coming to Christianity is the old, age-old, if God, why evil argument. I don't think there's one way to address that, and it is a very powerful and a very important question to ask. It's legitimate. But one of the ways Christians ought to answer, because it's how Moses answers it, to the plight of Israel in Egypt, is God did not make the world the way you see it. This, what you see, what you're offended by, is what man created when they did not want the Creator. What you are seeing is the sum and the result of the rejection of the good Creator God. 
So the irony is it flips that question around. Rather than using the evil in the world or the wrong that's been done to you as an excuse to push God away, the Bible would say, no, you've got it all wrong. It's the opposite. If you hate what's been done to you, if you hate what's going on in the world, if you hate the genocides that are happening, the civil wars that are tearing countries apart, the racism and sexism and everything else, if you hate that, then what you ought to hate is idolatry. Idolatry is what human beings do with the world when they don't want God. And so what Moses is saying is, my fellow Israelites, when you wake up in the morning and you know that today awaits you another severe beating with back-breaking labor and no hope and no end in sight, I want you to know, Israelite, that this is not the world God made. It is the world man made when it said no to God. But amidst the chaos of human sin, in the darkest hour, when you think, well, this is what humanity's done, and it's come to this point, where is God? And Moses says, he's right here. Even though Egypt is coming against Israel at this time, the result was what? They were fulfilling God's purposes for creation from the beginning. They were para, rava, mala, being fruitful, multiplying, filling. The oppression of sin and man could not drown out the blessing of God. And this is what Moses is teaching the people of Israel. God's purposes cannot be stopped. We might ask ourselves this morning, are you fulfilling God's purpose of new creation? You see, Israel, Old Testament Israel, was under a particular agreement. Same God, different covenant. The covenant defines the nature of the relationship. Christians are no longer under the Mosaic Covenant. We are under a new covenant. And that new covenant also has a new commission. The first great commission is Genesis 1.28. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. Let me read something to you because the greater Moses has come. And his name is Jesus Christ. And he was a prophet greater than Moses. And he too went to a mountain. And he too gave a covenant and a commission. And this is what it says. Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain. Where did Moses give the law? A mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when he saw him, they worshipped him. Appropriate only for Jesus if he is God, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Christians, God has a purpose for your life. My question for you is, are you fulfilling it? It's hard to fulfill it if you don't know what it is. And though I believe that there is a specific calling on each one of your lives, and you and I will differ on the specifics of that calling, the great calling, the great commission, is one all of us share. You, like me, this isn't just the pastor's job, we are to go wherever it is we are going, and we are called to make disciples. 
In other words, you are called to be a spiritual leader wherever you are. It might help to point out, um, I hate to undo missions for people, but some people read the Great Commission, so that's it. it says go, go therefore. So you're supposed to leave, you're supposed to sell everything, you're supposed to go to you know, another country. Well, I hate to put a damper on it, but actually go is not an imperative, it's a participle. It just says going, it doesn't say go. There's only one command in the Great Commission, and it's not go. It's not even baptizing, it's not even teaching. Those are participles as well. The only command in the Great Commission is make disciples. Going is simply what you naturally do. You're going down the freeway. You're going to the store. You're going to the Angels game. You're going to work. You're going to go hang out with some friends after work. Wherever it is you're going, you make disciples. Well, how do you do that? That's where the participles come in baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to do everything I've commanded you to do. Making disciples is God's purpose for your life. Now, this is something you and I ultimately cannot do in our own strength. The best we can do is be leaders of influence on other people's lives. And I do believe, by God's grace, everyone in this room, myself included, can increase our faithfulness and effectiveness for Christ. But at the end of the day, it is always the work of God's sovereign spirit upon the human, sinful, rebellious heart. We are called to lead We are called to influence. We are called to do everything we can do to make disciples, trusting in the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead to raise dead men and women spiritually to life. Are you fulfilling that purpose for your life? Secondly, being a Christian doesn't mean our comfortable circumstances can't or won't change at any moment. Look at verses 8 through 13. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Notice this is the, the language from the Tower of Babel. Come, let us build a tower and make a name for ourselves against God. It's the same kind of picture of the world. Babel and Egypt here. Lest they join our enemies and fight against us and so go up out of the land. Therefore they sent taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in dread of the children of Israel. And so the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them was with rigor. Notice how circumstances can completely be turned upside down. I mean, it doesn't get more opposite than this. The end of the story was the great famine, and God had sent Joseph before to Egypt to preserve life. Joseph gets promoted to second in command of all of Egypt. His family's got it made. His family's got it made. He's like, Dad, bring everyone on down. I'm the number two guy in Egypt. We got plenty of food. You're going to get the best of the land. This is a great deal. They had everything going for them. And here we read, one rose up in Egypt, perhaps the Hyksos people group. So if you don't know the history of Egypt, a foreign group invaded Egypt at one point in their history called the Hyksos people. This might explain why this person wouldn't have known Joseph. That's historically debatable, but many scholars believe that is the case. Either way, the circumstances completely change. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment because a lot of Christians have some pretty interesting ideas about what following Jesus means with respect to circumstances. Did Jacob make a mistake 
going down to Egypt. Keep in mind, we just read, all of his ancestors were enslaved. Did Jacob make a mistake going to Egypt? Did Jacob, did this happen because Jacob failed to consult God before moving his family down to Egypt? If, if Jacob would have prayed more, would he have known not to go to Egypt? If Jacob fasted more, if he would have afflicted his soul more, if he would have given more, would that have stopped all this from happening? Was it sin that brought slavery upon Egypt? Or excuse me, upon Israel? Was it sin? Is, is that why? Well, yeah, gosh, I mean, if bad things happen to you, it must be sin. Because we all know, we watch, we watch TVN, and, we, and there's lots of health and wealth gospel, and we all know if you follow Jesus, you'll be rich and wealthy and healthy the rest of your life, and you'll never have any problem. And your children will all obey you. You'll never get cancer. You'll always have so much money you don't know what to do with, and everybody's going to like you and think you're handsome and pretty. Because that's the gospel. Is it? That is not the gospel. The answer to those three questions I asked you are all no. We, Jacob did not make a mistake. We are told that God sent Joseph down to Egypt. It was God. And God used Joseph in Egypt to preserve his family. We're also told that Israel didn't sin to bring this on. In the Abrahamic covenant, God predicts to Abraham why they would be slaves, and it has nothing to do with personal sin. The reason Israel was going to end up slaves is because the time had not come in which the people groups of Canaan had become so vile, violent, disgusting, despicable that would warrant God as a righteous and fair judge to allow them to inherit the land. So they had to wait. And slavery happened. And it's easy not to read between the lines, but I think it's important that we do. The story on the journey to Exod or Genesis ends with, everything is going great. And even when we begin here in Exodus, okay, we know things are bad, but they're about to get out. Think about the generations that were born and lived and died in Egypt in slavery. They lived hard, difficult, painful lives, and it wasn't because they were not faithful enough. It wasn't because God didn't love them. It wasn't personal sin. It wasn't that they didn't pray enough. God in His sovereign purposes allows evil in the world. That is a fact everyone has to wrestle with at some level or another. But we see that even when evil is appearing to triumph, God's plan is never thwarted. That even then, God's faithfulness, and think about this, how many of you keep your promises? How many promises have you broke? Would you keep a promise to someone after they're dead? God did. You want to know how faithful God is to His promises? God promised Abraham... Not only would he have a family when his wife was barren, but he, he promised that his ancestors would be more in number than the sand on the seashore, and he would make of him a nation. Abraham is long dead. And we're seeing here God keeping his promises. Not even the death of his servants, not even the death of great leaders stops God's plan. And we can take comfort in the faithfulness of God. Many Christians believe that if we simply do spiritual things, we will have the equal and what we understand is proportionate temporal blessings. If I pray, I'll get a raise. If I go to church, I'll marry a believer who won't 
cheat on me and take everything I have. There is no promise for those things. And I've walked with way too many people through life to believe that. When I see life contradicting what people teach about the Bible, I have to look again at life, and I have to look again at Scripture. And I have never found Scripture to contradict itself in my experience. But I have seen often that the tales people tell about what they want Scripture to say are often not true. Being a Christian doesn't mean our comfortable circumstances can't and won't change. So my two questions for you this morning with respect to this point. Are you in uncomfortable circumstances this morning? Be encouraged that God is sovereign over you and your circumstances and has a plan for your life every bit as much as he did Abraham, Moses, and the children of Israel. And just because bad things happen does not necessarily mean you have done anything wrong. Now as a Christian, we have more work and more thinking to do and not less. Yes, Christians always have to ask, Lord, is it me? Did I sin? Did I offend you? Absolutely. But that's just good daily Christian practice. Lord, search me and know me. I hope you do that every day, regardless of what season it is. But what I'm saying is, having done that, just know there's seasons of life where bad things happen, and the answer is no, you didn't do anything to deserve that. You can look at our Savior Jesus Christ, because that's what everyone thought about Him. Well, obviously, He must have been a sinner. He died on a cross. That's what happens to sinners, horrible ones. Job and Job's friends. Oh, Job, you must have done horrible things. Your family died. You've lost all your money and you're physically sick. Obviously, you've sinned, Job. The Bible reminds people over and over again, though there is a general reaping and sowing principle at work in the universe, it is not mechanistic. It is mysterious. There are reasons for things that we simply cannot account for. And when we do our best to figure out why this bad thing has happened, and in those moments of both clarity and grace, we can honestly say, Lord, I didn't do this. We can hear these words. That God is faithful to us even when we're slaves in Egypt. God is faithful to us even when we lose our families. God is faithful to us even when we lose our jobs. God is faithful to us even when we lose our health. God is faithful. And you can be certain that God's plan for you cannot and will not be thwarted. So trust in Him. But perhaps you're in a different group this morning. Are you in comfortable circumstances this morning? To you, I would say just praise and thank God for that and do not take it lightly. Do not take it for granted, but hold it loosely and know that maybe God has given you a season of peace and safety and prosperity in order that you might share that with those who are suffering. Maybe the reason you're not suffering is so you can share in the sufferings of others. It's very hard to care for other people when you can't walk and you can't talk and you can't pay your own bills or you can't think straight. It's very hard to do that. Have you been in a season like that? I've been in a number of them. Lord, how am I supposed to help anybody when I can barely help myself? And God has been faithful to send beautiful, wonderful brothers and sisters in my life, sometimes more, sometimes less, to share in my suffering. 
And though they can't cure it, they can make the load a little lighter. So if you're in that place today, maybe that's God's call for this season of your life. Use this season of plenty, abundance, peace, and safety to share in the lives of those who don't have that. Point number three. It is a sacred duty to disobey evil government laws. Look at Exodus 1, 15-20. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives of whom the, the name of one was Shiphrah and the name of the other Puah. And he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore, God dealt well with the midwives and people multiplied and grew mighty and so it was because the midwives feared God he provided households for them while it is true and good that Christians in general ought to be known for being good citizens that's true we shouldn't be people who in the name of God in the name of the Bible and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and anything else, disobey laws of the land that God in His Word has not commanded us to do so. There's people that do that. Like, oh, I, I can't really clean the tables today. Uh, you know, God commanded somewhere not to do that. You know, uh, I think the Apostle said, it is not good that we should leave the Word of God to serve tables. That, that's in the book of Acts. So, so even though I work at Chili's uh, and, and I'm a waiter or waitress, I'm not gonna, I, mean, I can't do that because God commanded me not to. Christians in general should be known for being good citizens who care about their communities, that love their neighbors, and keep the laws. That should be generally what we're known for. But there has always been, since the days of Moses and the Judeo-Christian heritage, the practice of civil disobedience. Christians are not simply allowed to disobey wicked laws. They are commanded to. If the government actually passes wicked laws that command us to do wickedness. Again, them permitting it is another thing. That's not forcing you to do that. That's allowing other people who don't want to follow God anyway to do what they want to do. That's different. But if a law gets passed that says you must do wickedness, you don't simply have an option. Well, you know... Maybe I will, maybe I won't. Let's see how it works out. Our spiritual heritage dictates we must disobey. The text is very clear. The political powers that be commanded that children should be killed and the midwives disobeyed and the text says, and God blessed them. They were blessed. They were approved of by God for refusing to obey a wicked, evil command. There are many current cultural tens in America today which are and will test the church's very resolve and commitment to Jesus and the Scriptures. I'm not somebody that likes to create hysteria. I, I know that sells, like whip everybody into a frenzy, feed on their fears. I don't want to say the government's doing things that they're not doing yet. They might, but they haven't. But I'm also not going to sit here and say that the things I see going on bode well. Because they don't. 
there is wickedness on the horizon. And as more and more wicked people get into places of power and passing laws and enforcing those laws, more and more these things will come to a head. And so Christians must purpose now, not then, that we ought to obey God's laws rather than man's. But I'm concerned for the church. Because many churchgoers don't even obey God's laws now. If you can't attend church regularly now, what are you going to do when they actually pass laws that would label you a bigot or unhirable somewhere? What are you going to do then? You don't even come now. Who's going to give financially to the church if they decide we're not going to give you a tax break on your giving? What are you going to do when you have no worldly incentive to do so? The church needs to resolve now to bind ourselves to Christ and His purpose for the world. And don't just think it's going to be magic. One day you'll get faithful. Today is the day of salvation. If you're half-hearted, and I'm not mad at you, I find this in myself many times, many days, usually Monday. But if we're half-hearted at all, we need to repent. And we need to say, I'm all in on Jesus. I'm willing to bet my life on him. Not just a Sunday morning, not just a little moment here and there. I want my life bound to Jesus. His destiny to be intertwined with mine. His purpose. His kingdom. That's what I want to live for. And you actually have to take real world steps to do that. You can say Jesus is in your heart. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. How in the world do I know? How does anyone know? James says, well, we know who has Jesus in their heart by how you live. So resolve today to bind ourselves to God's way and will for our lives so that when the hard times come, and I imagine they will, apart from a mighty work of grace and a moving of the Spirit of God we often refer to as revival, apart from that, we will be facing such things. Many Christians in the world aren't sitting around going, hey, maybe it's getting bad. They're like, we actually have to flee for our lives. Some Christians live in countries where they don't know if they go to church, their building won't blow up. American Christians are like, well, the coffee be good. Right? I mean, honestly. I mean, I care about the coffee a lot, by the way. But I'm just saying, like, how American am I? I'm worried about the coffee. We need to bind ourselves to Christ now when the forces of the law have not come completely against us so that if and when they do, we are ready. And the day to begin doing that is not then, it's now. Lastly, point number four, and this is my main point on leadership for the morning. Good leaders are forged in bad times. Look at verse 22. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. You know, it's funny, it doesn't matter who the president is, it always happens this way. That, you know, when you come into office, you, you don't come in ex nihilo, right? Like there were no policies in place, there were no trends, there was no nothing. And every politician, when they come in, anything that's good, what do you do? Do you give credit to the predecessor? No, I, I did that. And if anything's bad, what do you do? That was my predecessor. My predecessor did that. That's what everyone tries to do. Everyone wants to be a leader in good times. Everyone wants to be a leader in good times. Some people think that's what a leader is. They look at good times surrounding you. Oh, wow, you got an easy life. 
You know, you got a great marriage, your kids are all, you know, straight A students, and they pray seven times a day towards Jerusalem, and, you know, they, they know the Bible, not only in English, but in Hebrew and Greek, and yes, the little portions of the Old Testament, in Aramaic, they know that too. They know all this, and you say, oh, well, that's, that's perfect. But what we see here is that the stage set for one of the greatest leaders in human history was horrible. In the time when ethnic cleansing and genocide was happening. Who wants to be a leader then? No, no hands this morning? I didn't think so. That is the time that Moses is birthed into the world. Who would Moses be in history if he were born into a time of peace and plenty? And everything was fine in Egypt, and Joseph's successors went on ruling as he did. Second in Egypt, oops, actually one even moved up and became Pharaoh. How do you like that? And the Jewish people thrived, and they were rich, and they were wealthy, and they didn't have a care in the world except about what games they wanted to play on Monday. And Moses was born. Who would not want to be a leader in that time? But he wouldn't have been a great leader. It's because good leaders are forged in bad times. One of the things I've found to be true, and this includes myself, is that people are often attracted to people who have an easy life. They're attracted to that. And sometimes we think a leader is a person who has the kind of life we want. A nice, comfortable life. It makes sense, right? I mean, that's attractive. But there's a problem. If you read this book called The Bible, you discover none of the great leaders of the Bible had an easy life. In fact, some of them had incredibly difficult lives. David is set forth in the Old Testament as the king par excellence a man after God's own heart, if you actually look at his career, it's not that impressive. Being deposed by your own son and running for your life and sleeping in a cave while your son humiliates you and sleeps with one of your wives in front of everyone and smears it in your face and put it on social media, and that's David. That's his career. Committing adultery, murdering somebody. He lived through desperate, trying times. You look at Moses, and I'm just so in, in love with the picture of humanity that we see in the man Moses. Because I see greatness, but I see frailty. I see excellence in leadership, but I see a, an, a, a man who can only take so much before he snaps. Don't push Moses too close to the edge. He's trying not to lose his head. Uh, uh, some of you know what I'm doing. Many of the leaders of the Bible had incredibly difficult lives. And I want to actually suggest this morning, it actually takes bad times, wilderness experiences, in order to be a leader who can lead others out of such times but I leave that for you to decide. Answer this question. Do you want to be led out of the wilderness by someone who's never been there? Or do you trust to be led out of the wilderness by the man who lived there for 40 years? Who do you want to follow? We're attracted to the person who's never spent a day in the wilderness. But when your wilderness comes, believe you me, you want to be led out by the man who has been there. And so you too can be if you follow Jesus in difficult times. You can become the kind of man or woman that other people can look to, not just as, oh, that's a nice, squeaky, clean American dream life, but, oh, that's how to survive in the wilderness. I need survival skills. Yes, I wanted this big, beautiful flamboyant life, but what I need now is water and a staff and a tent. 
And who can teach me such skills? God wants to turn you into the kinds of leaders that can do that for others. So for you, if you are in a difficult season right now, a wilderness season, take courage in knowing that not only do such trials not disqualify you, they are the very things that qualify you to join the ranks of the great men and women of history. God can use what you're going through to lead others out of what they are going through. But inevitably, as we'll see later, even the great man Moses fails. You're going to fail. Maybe you're failing right now in your wilderness experience. There is good news for you. When we fail as leaders, and it's inevitable that we do, the Bible tells us there, there was one leader greater than Moses who never failed his test in the wilderness. When Jesus spent how many days? Forty. Forty days in the wilderness, unlike Moses, unlike you, unlike me. When Jesus was in the wilderness, he did not fail once. He did not sin once. He did not give up once. And he defeated both sin and death on the cross. And his name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And one day where he is, to those who have faith, we will be also. This is the good news, friends. Believe it and grab it with both hands. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank You so much for not giving up on this world. I think I would have a hundred times over. I thank You that You love human beings so much You are completely committed to recreating the world the way it was supposed to be. I thank You that You're not waiting to the end of time and the resurrection to sort it all out, which You will do. But I am thankful that now, in and through Jesus Christ, through the gift of faith and trusting in His sacrifice and His leadership on our behalf, You are granting us the gift of the Holy Spirit and we are able to partner in new creation now. As the Apostle Paul said, Behold, if anyone is in Christ, new creation has begun. Let us embrace the Gospel of Jesus today. Let us say yes to Your will for our lives, no matter what the wilderness might be. Let us say yes to following Jesus. And let us say yes to Your grace to be leaders for our community, for our church, for our family, for our friends, and yes, even for our enemies. Help us to love others as you have loved us. Help us to be influence that brings people to Christ. Raise up everyone in this room, I pray, as a leader in their lives, in their spheres of influence. Let them be leaders like Moses, who follow after that rock, who is Christ. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.